0: It's November 15th, 1892, London, England. The pale sunlight of dawn creeps across the walls of Newgate Prison. Its imposing facade casts shadows across the crowd of people that are gathered out front. There hasn't been a public execution here for 24 years. Nowadays, all the action takes place behind the prison walls, but it's not uncommon for hordes of people to turn up for the occasion. This morning is no exception. Estimates put the numbers at several thousand. The man whose impending death has dragged them out of bed today is a convicted murderer. One that has hogged the headlines this year for a series of grisly killings. They may not get to see him swing from the gallows firsthand, but the public are drawn to these events like moths to a flame. Somewhere behind the walls... Within a small, sparsely furnished cell, the condemned man sits quietly tucking into his last meal as a guard stands watch over him. He doesn't look like your typical convict. What with his smart attire and gold-rimmed spectacles, he can still pass for the respectable member of society that many had taken him for over the years. Once his plate is clear, he knows there isn't much time left. Soon, a second guard arrives along with a priest. The prisoner rises to his feet and the group head out of the cell and move along the corridor. It's a subdued atmosphere as they make their way through a claustrophobic series of low arches framing the corridor known as Dead Man's Walk. In places, it's only wide enough for one person at a time to pass. The prisoner feels beads of sweat trickle down his back, soaking into his shirt. His eyes dart from side to side but he's trapped like a rat in a maze. They reach the end and turn onto the home stretch, a passage known as the Birdcage, so called because it's open to the elements, covered only by a net, a condemned prisoner's last chance to see daylight. The very slabs under his feet hold a macabre place in history, with the remains of executed convicts buried underneath. He is literally walking over his own grave. It's as if things speed up for him now. The prisoner is ushered through a door that leads into a shed that houses the gallows. Inside, a group of men stand waiting, a mixture of guards and officials. The faint sound of the crowd filters through, but before he can focus on what they're shouting, the hangman steps forward. He slides a noose over the prisoner's head and cinches it around his neck. A coarse hood is pulled down over his eyes and ears, muffling the outside world. All that the prisoner hears now are the priest's prayers and his own labored breathing. With no sense of how long his final seconds might stretch out for, he swallows hard. Then, without warning, he feels the trapdoor beneath his feet start to shift. With his last breath, he opens his mouth and utters what will be one of the most infamous last lines ever heard in Newgate prison. I am Jack. But he never finishes the sentence. Whatever else he planned to say is cut off as he drops the five feet the rope allows before he's silenced forever. Those three words are enough to make the hangman's eyes widen, though. You see, the man he has just executed isn't called Jack, but that name resonates with him the way it does with thousands of others across 19th century London. In fact... It chills him to his bones. Four years ago, the city was terrorized by a serial killer known only as Jack the Ripper, a man who brutally murdered women, then vanished without a trace. Could this man, himself a convicted murderer, now swinging at the end of the rope, really be the most infamous killer London has ever seen? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a convicted killer and the words he spoke before he died. It's about a country reeling from a series of brutal murders a faceless serial killer who terrorized the city's red light districts, then disappeared like smoke on the breeze. It's about women murdered years later who were linked to the Ripper's victims, and the deathbed confession that, if true, threatens to blow both cases wide open. I'm Estefania Haigman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. London in the late 19th century is a city of contrasts. It's home to some of the most iconic buildings of its time. The Houses of Parliament on the banks of the River Thames, the huge clock face of Big Ben towering over cobbled streets, and perhaps the most famous of all, Buckingham Palace, home to Queen Victoria. However, less than four miles to the east of the palace lies the District of Whitechapel. The difference is stark. Around a quarter of a million people call Whitechapel home. Many are sandwiched into overcrowded rooms and run-down boarding houses. Disease and malnutrition are rife, and only half of the children born in the area will live to see their fifth birthday. But illness isn't the only danger. Here in Whitechapel, crime rates are high. Pickpockets, thieves, or worse still, killers could be waiting around every corner. So when the sun sets... The poorly lit streets and network of alleyways provide a dangerous backdrop for anyone brave enough to venture out. In Whitechapel, unemployment is widespread, especially so for the women. An estimated 1,200 turn to sex work to make ends meet. That's around one in every 15. It's long been an occupation that carries an element of risk, spending their time in dark rooms and even darker alleys with unknown customers. What's worse, physical attacks on sex workers in the area are so commonplace that they barely even register with the rest of Londoners, let alone make the news. The women of Whitechapel are left to suffer in silence. It's against this backdrop of poverty, danger, and social injustice that one of the most notorious serial killers ever to walk the earth starts to ply his trade. It's August 31st. 1888, 3.40 a.m. A delivery man picks his way through dimly lit streets on his way to work. His hurried footsteps echo off damp brick walls as he hustles west towards Liverpool Street in northeast London. But something catches his eye on the opposite side of the road. It looks like a bundle of rags lying heaped on the ground. Curiosity getting the better of him, the delivery man crosses the street to get a closer look. The formless mass starts to take shape. He stops a few feet short, eyes widening in horror as he realizes what he's seeing. It's a woman, stretched out on her back, skirt hiked up almost to her waist. She's not moving. He's not even sure if she's breathing. He stands frozen for a beat until he's snapped out of his trance by approaching footsteps. He whips his head around to see another early morning commuter staring across at him. Come and look over here, the delivery man calls out. The commuter obliges and the pair look at her for a second before one of them reaches down to place a hand on her chest. The commuter feels what he thinks is the faint rise and fall of her breathing, but instead of trying to rouse her, he stands back. Without taking a closer look to see the full extent of her injuries, the pair decide to walk away. In a somewhat callous moment, they agree it's more important not to be late for work. So they pull her skirt back down to preserve her modesty and leave her where she lies. As they part company, they each vow to tell the first policeman they come across what they've seen. They turn and walk away, footsteps fading as silence descends over the street once more. Minutes later, purely by chance, A police officer on his beat stumbles upon the woman. As he lowers his lamp to see her face, he notices something the two men missed. The woman's throat has been cut. A second officer appears and runs immediately to fetch a doctor, but it makes no difference. The woman is pronounced dead around 4 a.m. Mary Nichols, as she'll soon be identified, has just become the first victim of London's most infamous serial killer, known only by the terrifying name, Jack the Ripper. And although Mary is his first victim, she's by no means his last. Between August 31st and November 9th, 1888, a further four women are murdered in the East End of London all met a similar gruesome death, and police have reason to believe it was at the hands of the same man. The unknown killer is christened Jack the Ripper, thanks to a letter received by a London news agency. Written in bright red ink, which has a haunting similarity to blood, the author claims responsibility for the murders and signs off with the name Jack the Ripper. The letter turns out to be a hoax, but the name sticks with both the press and the public. It's a horrifically fitting title based on what he does to his victims. They're all killed with a blade of sorts. Some have internal organs removed, and others are barely identifiable from the cuts to their faces. True to the nickname, stories of Jack rip through the city, every woman fearing that they could end up his next victim. It's a fear like London has never before seen. Scotland Yard is under immense pressure to stop the notorious killer. At the head of their criminal investigation division, known as the CID, is a man called Robert Anderson. He started the job the day after Mary Nichols' body was found. And just like every other Londoner, Anderson is praying for a break in the case. But then, just like that, after the fifth Ripper victim is discovered on November 9, 1888, the murders suddenly stop able to breathe for the first time in months, Anderson focuses on the facts. He directs his attention to what police already know. Because of the way in which the victims' bodies were mutilated, it's thought that Jack might work as a doctor or a butcher, someone with easy access to sharp tools. To this end, Scotland Yard conducts extensive house-to-house searches throughout Whitechapel, interviewing over 2,000 people and paying particular attention to those involved in certain professions. But it's like Jack has vanished into thin air. The endless speculation in the press does little to calm the panicked citizens of London. Could he have fled the country, ended up in prison for a different offense, or even have died himself? Whatever the truth of the matter, nobody is charged with the five murders, and the case remains officially open. Without a suspect in custody, the fear that he might strike again lingers like a dark cloud over the city. People think twice about taking shortcuts down dark alleys, and locals organize groups known as vigilance committees to patrol the streets at night. It'll be another four years before a prisoner allegedly confesses with his dying breath to be the infamous Jack. But by then, another four women will already be dead. It's early evening on October 13th, 1891, and Ellen Donworth, a 19-year-old sex worker, breezes past her landlady and out onto Commercial Street in London's East End. She shares a room in a boarding house situated just a little over a mile away from where the Ripper's first victim had been found three years earlier. Ellen tells her landlady she's off to see a gentleman she has met recently. Whether he's a client or just an acquaintance, she doesn't say. A friend sees her a little later coming out of a courtyard behind a local bar as the sunset sends shadows across cobbled streets. But Ellen isn't alone. The man with her is well-dressed and wears a top hat. Not someone her friend recognizes, but then again, Ellen knows a lot of men thanks to the nature of her work, so her friend thinks little of it. Not long after that, a second friend spies Ellen leaning against a gate. This time, though, something seems off. Ellen is wincing and complaining of severe stomach pains. Her friend rushes to her side and offers to help her back to her place. The closer they get to home, the worse Ellen's pain becomes. By the time they reach her front door, she's in complete agony. She tells the second friend about the man she was with tonight. According to her, he gave her something to drink from a bottle he had with him but her friend is more focused on her deteriorating condition than what may have caused it. After helping her into bed, he leaves her with her roommate and rushes off to get help. By the time he returns with a doctor, Ellen is convulsing so strongly that they're struggling to hold her down. She writhes around, desperately gasping for breath. She's sent to the nearby St. Thomas's hospital, but for Ellen, it's too little, too late. She dies in the carriage on the way there. An autopsy two days later reveals that Ellen Donworth had ingested a lethal amount of strychnine, a powerful neurotoxin that can cause severe muscle spasms and death by asphyxia. The coroner adds that it is an incredibly painful way to go. At the inquest that follows, Ellen's landlady shares what the young woman had said to her that night. She describes the tall, dark-haired man that Ellen said had given her an unknown substance to drink. The inference is clear. The drink may have contained the poison that killed Ellen. Incredibly, though, Scotland Yard takes a different view. They believe she knowingly ingested the substance. Weakly diluted strychnine is sometimes prescribed by a doctor for certain heart issues, but too much of it can be deadly. As such, the inquest rules Ellen Donworth's death a suicide. It's possible that this blasé attitude is part of a deep-rooted societal issue, one where the authorities look the other way when it comes to sex workers and the dangers of their trade. Just like the Ripper case from four years ago, police pay little attention to what goes on in the alleys and side streets of London. However, Scotland Yard's theory of suicide overlooks one crucial question. How could a 19-year-old girl like Ellen get hold of a substance only available to doctors and chemists. Unfortunately for Ellen, police aren't interested in finding out this answer, and they make no further investigation. But it's an oversight they'll soon come to regret, one that means more lives will be lost in the months that follow.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some,
0: six months have passed since the tragic death of 19-year-old Ellen Donworth. It's approaching 2 a.m. and moonlight bathes the quiet roads and alleyways of Lambeth, South London. Stamford Street lies less than three miles west of Whitechapel, one-time hunting ground of Jack the Ripper. Although there's still a lingering sense of fear from the unsolved Ripper cases, the streets of Lambeth are fairly relaxed. P.C. George Comley walks with a slow, measured stride, not expecting much trouble. As he walks past number 118, the front door creaks open and a man steps out. He's more well-dressed than Cumley is used to seeing around Lambeth, one of the poorer neighborhoods in London. The man is around 5'9", sporting a top hat and dark overcoat, with a bushy mustache and gold-rimmed spectacles. He mutters good evening to P.C. Cumley who taps his hat in return and watches as the man strides away down the street. Cumley continues on his beat, which takes him in a large loop. But when he returns to Stamford Street around 45 minutes later, he finds a very different scene. It's around 2.30 a.m. when Cumley returns to number 118 Stamford Street. Just like last time, the door opens again, but with none of the care of the previous gentleman. Cumley sees a fellow officer burst out of the door with a woman in his arms. She's gasping in pain, and Cumley's colleague hurries towards a waiting wagon. There's one more inside. He calls out to Cumley, who rushes into the house to find a second woman lying on the floor, frothing at the mouth and struggling to draw breath. PC Cumley scoops her up and takes her to join his colleague in the wagon outside. As the carriage speeds off at a gallop, The second officer tells Comley what little he knows. The two women are 21-year-old Alice Marsh and 19-year-old Emma Shrivel, both sex workers who live together on Stamford Street. They head for nearby St. Thomas's Hospital as fast as they can. But even though it's less than a mile away, it's too late for Alice Marsh, who soon lies dead in Comley's arms. Emma Shrivel is still breathing, but from the look of her, they're not sure how much longer she can hold on. There are no visible injuries, but something is causing her excruciating pain. As doctors try to work out what's wrong with Emma Shrivel, she manages to share with calmly what happened to her and Marsh. Shrivel talks about a man they both spent the evening with. He gave them pills to take, telling the women that they would protect them against venereal disease. Calmly describes the gentleman he saw leaving their house earlier the smartly dressed man with a top hat and gold rimmed spectacles. Asking if this was the man who gave them the pills, Shrivel nods and tells Calmly that they call him Fred. His name is the last piece of information she shares with them. Shortly after dawn, Emma Shrivel dies, leaving police in no doubt that they have a double murder on their hands. The inquest into the deaths of Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh is held the very next day on April 13th. One theory put forward by the police is that the women may have died as a result of food poisoning. They both ate from a tin of salmon the night they died. But the coroner is not convinced. In fact, something about these deaths is hauntingly familiar to him. Six months earlier, the coroner had presided over an inquest into the death of another young woman, also a sex worker, 19-year-old Ellen Donworth. Her cause of death, though ruled a suicide at the time, was later identified as strychnine poisoning. All three women were involved in sex work and all were given something to take by a well-dressed, unknown man. They suffered similar symptoms before their tragic deaths. Shrivel and Marsh's landlady testifies at the inquest. She says Shrivel had been comfortable taking whatever was in those pills as the stranger told them he was a doctor. This is enough for the coroner to adjourn the inquest. He wants to study samples taken from Shrivel and Marsh, as well as the tin of salmon they allegedly ate from before making a ruling. The results are reported on May 5th. Marsh had the equivalent of seven grains of strychnine in her system. Shrivel had three. As little as half a grain is known to be fatal to humans. Surely such a connection can't be ignored. Three women killed by the same restricted substance, all of whom received it from a mystery man in a top hat and coat. The last time that a group of sex workers were killed is still all too fresh in people's memory. Only four years have passed since Jack the Ripper terrorized the streets of Whitechapel. The M.O. may be different here, but Scotland Yard can't risk the levels of panic they had back then. They need a breakthrough, and they need one soon. As luck would have it, the very same day the inquest is adjourned, a letter is delivered to the coroner. Scotland Yard doesn't realize it yet, but it's the first in a chain of events that will lead to the answers they so desperately crave. The envelope is addressed to the coroner. Inside is a letter that makes a startling claim. The writer states that a doctor by the name of Walter Harper is responsible for the deaths of Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh. Although police are skeptical about the letter and doubt it has much credibility, it does provide a bizarre connection to two previous murder cases. The first is the death of Ellen Donworth. Back then, the coroner had also received a similar letter claiming to know who her killer was. In that instance, though, the author accused a well-known politician of murder. The second similarity is, of course, the murders of Jack the Ripper. While his killings terrorized London, police received hundreds of letters claiming to be from the notorious murderer and challenging detectives to try and stop him. The letter is too big a coincidence to ignore and police check to see if there have been any other similar cases which could give them a lead. Sure enough, a third instance emerges. Six months ago, in October 1891, only seven days after Ellen Donworth's murder, another young lady lost her life. Her name was Matilda Clover, and soon after her death, two prominent figures received letters accusing them of being responsible for the murder. But 27-year-old Matilda Clover's death was ruled as unsuspicious. Her cause of death was alcoholism. So is it just a coincidence that a letter was sent when she died? Or is there more to her case than first meets the eye? The answer, when it's revealed, comes from an unexpected source. John Haynes is a former New York City police detective He rents a room less than a mile from the Stamford Street address where Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel were poisoned. Haynes is hoping to land a job with Scotland Yard and pays a visit to a friend of his who works there, Inspector Patrick McIntyre. Haynes tells McIntyre about a man he has recently befriended, a doctor that seems to know a great deal about the London poisonings, way more than you'd expect from a member of the public. In fact, the new friend has shared enough information with Haynes that the American is worried it could be more than just a passing interest in a high-profile case. Haynes tells McIntyre that his friend has talked in great detail about places and times. He's even named two women that haven't been part of the story in the press. One of the women is already familiar to McIntyre, Matilda Clover, whose case cropped up thanks to the letter. The second name, though, means nothing to McIntyre. Louise Harvey. His curiosity now piqued, Inspector McIntyre asks Haynes for the name of his friend. Thomas Neal, says Haynes, a doctor living on Lambeth Palace Road. McIntyre sits bolt upright at the mention of the address. He's seen it before on the letter that claimed to know who killed Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh. The alleged murderer lives there, Dr. Walter Harper. Is it possible that Thomas Neal and Walter Harper are one and the same? McIntyre certainly thinks so. To him, it's as though the pieces of the puzzle are finally coming together. There are now four women who have died in East London, maybe a fifth if Haynes' story adds up. three of the women died by ingesting strychnine given to them by a man claiming to be a doctor. And when police exhume Matilda Clover's body, they discover that she too was poisoned by the same substance. What's more, all four deaths were accompanied by mysterious letters. Letters which allegedly came from Lambeth Palace Road, home to a strange man who seems to have an obsessive interest in the case's. This could be the break Scotland Yard has been praying for. McIntyre resolves to take a long, hard look at Dr. Thomas Neal. Could he be the man behind the poisonings? Frustratingly for Scotland Yard, digging into the background of Thomas Neal is far more difficult than they expected. To start with, Thomas Neal isn't his full name. In fact, he's called Thomas Neal Cream. What's more, he's not even British. Detectives learn that he grew up in Canada, where he studied medicine and graduated with honors in 1876. Following this, he spent some time in the States before traveling to England and rebranding himself as Dr. Thomas Neal. McIntyre is curious as to why he'd change his name on arrival to England, so he sends an investigator across the Atlantic to find out. While they wait to hear back from their man in the States, Investigators in London make several discoveries of their own. After speaking to Matilda Clover's chambermaid, Scotland Yard receives a detailed physical description of the man Clover had claimed to be her boyfriend. He was around five foot nine, often wore a top hat and smart overcoat with a bushy mustache and spectacles. Not only does this description match that of Cream, but Clover's boyfriend also went by the name of Fred it's the same name that was given to police by Emma Shrivel when she claimed Fred gave her and Alice Marsh the deadly pills. Towards the end of May, 1892, the investigators looking into Cream's life in America report back. They found some disturbing information, information which could link him to the recent poisonings. Cream's own wife, it seems, died unexpectedly in 1877, after taking medication he had sent her. As if this isn't enough to cement his place as prime suspect in London, he also has a criminal record from a spell spent in Chicago. The crime he was convicted for? Murdering a man 11 years ago in 1881 by poisoning him with strychnine. By June 3rd, 1892, the weight of evidence against Cream is enough to convince Scotland Yard that he's their man. His physical appearance matches the suspect linked to the deaths of Ellen Donworth, Emma Shrivel, and Alice Marsh, as well as the boyfriend of Matilda Clover. Although the evidence is circumstantial and doesn't prove that Cream was the killer, it's enough to get him arrested and sent to the infamous Holloway Prison in North London. The man who gives the go-ahead for Cream's arrest is Robert Anderson, head of the Criminal Investigation Division, and the detective who led the case on Jack the Ripper all those years ago. Anderson remembers how the unsolved Ripper murders damaged Scotland Yard's prestigious reputation. The notion of yet more women being murdered on his watch with nobody being held accountable doesn't sit well. Anderson's hope is that he can find enough hard evidence to prove that Cream is the murderer. If not, they may have to turn him loose. That would be a PR disaster, not to mention the fact that an alleged killer would be free to roam the streets once more. On June twenty-second, 1892, Cream is dragged from his prison cell and thrown in front of a jury. he's facing a hearing about the death of Matilda Clover. Today, a judge and jury will decide whether Clover's death was really a murder and if Cream should stand trial. It's not clear why he's not being tried for the murders of Ellen Donworth, Emma Shrivel, and Alice Marsh. It's possible that there isn't enough hard evidence linking him to these cases. Or perhaps Scotland Yard will save these charges for a later date, just in case Cream isn't found guilty this time the story of Dr. Cream is laid out for the court to hear. How he knew a disturbing amount of information about the murders, how his address matches the author of the mysterious letters, and how he mentioned Clover's name as a victim before police had even confirmed her cause of death. At this moment in time, the second name Cream spoke about, Louise Harvey, hasn't yet been verified as a victim of poisoning. Although police have tried to find out who she could be, they've had no luck. Regardless, the case against Cream is strong and is made even more convincing when a pharmacist testifies that he recently sold strychnine to Cream. Meanwhile, Cream sits through it all, looking relatively unperturbed, despite being manacled to the bench. However, that all changes in the second week of the inquest. Shortly after the session begins, there's a disturbance at the back of the courtroom. Voices are raised, chairs are knocked over, and whispers flutter to the front of the room as the double doors fly open. There, standing rooted to the spot, is a young woman. Unbeknown to the court, she's about to become the prosecution's next witness. Those watching Creem see his eyes widen at the sight of the woman as she walks in. It's as if he knows her, but can't quite believe what he's seeing. He stares at the woman like he's seen a ghost, and all the color drains from his face. Seconds later, the court finds out why. Marching past the spectators to the judge, the woman introduces herself as Louise Harvey. The name is familiar. She's the mystery woman police have been looking for. The name Cream mentioned as another of the poisoner's victims. Louise Harvey tells the prosecutor that she met Cream back in April this year. She alleges that he gave her two pills to take, telling her she was too pale and that they would bring the color back into her cheeks. But according to Louise Harvey, something about Cream hadn't felt right, so she trusted her gut. She pretended to take the pills but instead threw them away when he wasn't looking. This would certainly explain why Cream looks like he's seen a ghost. Louise Harvey is asked to confirm whether the man who gave her the pills is in the room. She answers without hesitation. Yes, he is, she says in a clear voice, pointing at Cream. There he sits, sir, as big as life. Cream's shoulders sag, and the chains on his wrists rattle as he leans forward, head bowed. Surely there's no way he can escape justice this time. On July 13, 1892, after a little over two weeks, the decision is made. The verdict is that its likely cream gave Matilda Clover strychnine with the intent of killing her. He's moved to Newgate Prison, next to the Old Bailey Law Courts in London. Here, he'll await trial for murder, a crime which, if found guilty, comes with a death sentence. Thomas Cream's murder trial takes place three months later on October 17th, 1892. After months in prison, Cream isn't looking quite as sharp as when he was arrested. His face is now covered by a bushy beard that's grown while in prison, and he sits in sullen silence for most of the five days it takes. The prosecution closely mirrors the approach from the hearing, calling many of the same witnesses. Cream's defense team, by contrast, call no witnesses. Instead, they build their case on the notion that no man should be convicted on the basis of circumstantial evidence. Cream pleads not guilty, and his lawyer asks for the case to be thrown out. But the arguments against him make for compelling listening. The witnesses who have identified him, including a police officer who saw him at the scene of the Martian shrivel murders, his time behind bars as a poisoner in America, his physical similarities to the man known only as Fred, and of course, the testimony from Louise Harvey. Although his lawyer continually points out that much of this is circumstantial, the jury disagrees. It only takes them 10 minutes to return a verdict of guilty. The sentence, death by hanging. Thomas Cream doesn't have to wait long before his trip to the gallows. On November 15th, 1892, 26 days after being sentenced, he is escorted into the shed at Newgate Prison where the executioner awaits. Some go to meet their maker in stony silence. Others sob. Cream, however, chooses to speak. As the trapdoor starts to creak open under his feet, The hangman swears he hears Cream utter three chilling words. Words which instantly link him to a whole host of other murders and suggest he may be London's most infamous serial killer. With his dying breaths, Cream claims that his name is Jack. If Thomas Cream had been granted just a few more seconds, he would have finished his sentence. But what would he have said? Was he about to say that he was Jack the Ripper? His executioner certainly thinks so, as do the men and women of London. As word spreads throughout the city about the dying words of Dr. Thomas Cream, the infamous case of Jack the Ripper gains momentum once more. London's pubs are filled with gossip and speculation. Armchair detectives try to prove his new theory, and Cream's name becomes intrinsically linked with the Ripper's murders. Ripperologists can't help but notice the strange coincidences between the killers. First, Jack the Ripper was reported to have a level of medical or at least anatomical knowledge from the way he butchered his victims. Cream, of course, was a practicing doctor. Second, in both cases, the victims were either confirmed or alleged sex workers, and the murders occurred in and around the same areas of London. What's more, Both sets of killings were accompanied by letters that claimed to have knowledge of the murders. Some even claim that Cream's handwriting is similar to that in letters allegedly sent by the Ripper. There's certainly a strong case to suggest that Dr. Thomas Cream was the infamous Jack the Ripper. However, there are differences too, differences which threaten to make the Cream theory little more than a conspiracy. The most glaring is how the victims were killed. While the Ripper cut the throats of women, Cream poisoned his victims with strychnine. Most serial killers have an MO that they stick with, suggesting the murders were committed by two different people. However, a killer could change their methods, and an educated man like Cream may have done just that to throw police off his scent. However, the biggest problem in Cream's claim to be the Ripper stems from his conviction for murder in Chicago. In 1888, while the Ripper was terrorizing the streets of Whitechapel, according to records, Cream was serving life in prison in Joliet, Illinois. Although he was released after just three years, his time behind bars on a different continent makes a strong case that he was not the Ripper. Such is the enduring fascination with Jack the Ripper that even today, many fans of Ripper folklore refuse to fully count Cream out. Popular theories speculate that Cream bribed his way out of prison early and headed to the back streets of Whitechapel in 1888. Some say that his brother negotiated for his early release, while others believe he paid a lookalike to serve his sentence for him. But that's all they are, theories not backed up by any hard evidence. Then again, those who believe them argue that they can't be disproved either. Since the Ripper killings took place in 1888, over 100 names have cropped up as possible suspects. After all these years, it's a series of crimes that may never be solved. The Ripper stories will continue to capture the imagination of generations, decades after every suspect is long gone. Regardless of whether Dr. Cream was in fact Jack the Ripper, there's no mistake that Cream was a monster in his own right. With his execution, the women of London could breathe a little easier while Scotland Yard could celebrate that they'd caught a serial killer. What Cream's dying words truly meant or why he spoke them, we may never know. But at the very least, they've immortalized him in one of London's most enduring criminal tales. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Luis Salazar, a violent man with a criminal past. When a young mother is brutally stabbed in front of her three children, Salazar hands himself into police and claims responsibility. But as it turns out, that's not all he's responsible for. A deathbed confession given years later, in confidence to his counselor, will reveal just how extensive Salazar's criminal background really is. It includes violence, robberies, and worst of all, murder. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast. Produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.